0: I am ready.
1: I am too, Dave, David. we're You're going to probably go by both throughout this episode. So, you know, I actually, this was brought to my attention during the days between that we've maybe not introduced ourselves ever on this show. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. So my name is Alex. I'm a, one of the co-hosts of this show. If you've heard it before, you you recognize my voice. Uh, my fellow co hosts is...
0: David or Dave, whichever you prefer, Uh, the two of us met in 2016, 15, 15, began living together in 2016, have been friends ever since, got on the bus in 2019, 2020, and here we are.
1: Here we are. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know if we need to really go into any more background than that at this point in time, but at least it's good to say our names, you know? We're excited to be with you today. We have a, a jam-packed episode and a pretty big one. We're going to be joined in just a couple minutes by Dave or David Davis. Uh, he is at Grateful Seconds on Twitter. He runs the phenomenal Grateful Seconds website. We'll get into all that when he joins us, but we're today going to talk about the Grateful Dead show from June 9th, 1976 at the Boston Music Hall. When we kind of started on this whole podcast journey uh, a few months ago, one of our first tweets was he had tweeted about this show and we basically said, would you want to do an episode with us about it? And without missing a beat, he said, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> what a generous guy that he has been, that was in February and it's now almost June. And he has just patiently waited as you know, we messaged him back and we were like, thank you for being willing to do this. We would like to talk about it near the anniversary. In June, would, would it be okay with you if we kind of put off the recording until closer to then so we could do some other episodes in the meantime? And he was like, yeah, sure, totally. Whatever works for you guys. So he was very generous with his time today. And we'll play our interview with him in the middle of this show. So that's kind of the, the plan for this episode. Dave and I are going to do our normal intro segment, talk for you know some a few minutes about that stuff like we normally do, what's going on this year with the Grateful Dead, the tour, stuff like that. Go to our interview with Dave, and then we'll come back and finish it up by talking about all of the songs in detail uh, we'll probably breeze through a couple songs that we talked about in detail with him but rest assured you'll get some conversation about all of the show all of the songs that the dead played on this great show in history and on that note I think we should dare I say head into the days between there Maybe my favorite days between, probably the best one yet. Yeah, pretty good one. Um, so Dave, you and I got together in the days between, which was very exciting.
0: Yeah, you Bye. came on down to my domain in Columbia, South Carolina, and uh, we hung out for two days. And something that I really wanted to take you and your wife Jane to was the Soda City Market, the farmers market in downtown Columbia, right on Main Street, if you know the area. And so we went down in that morning, and what did we find?
1: a heady-ass market. (laughs) It's just no way around it. So one of the first things that we saw was a poster shop. I think it was called the Englishman's Prints or Englishman's Poster Boards or something like that. And staring back at us like a beacon in the night was an awesome Grateful Dead print that he had from the Closing of Winterland show in 78. So I immediately grabbed that and was like, all right, well, dibs. And uh, we looked around. He had a lot of awesome prints. Uh, A few other dead ones, including a framed dead picture or poster from uh, Those Knit the Nick. And so just really cool. And then as we kept walking around, we saw a t-shirt shop that had some really cool used dead tie-dye shirts. Then we kept going. We saw a a tie-dye shop, just like a dedicated tie-dye shop. I'm so sad that I didn't get the name of it because these tie-dyes were really, really cool and unique. And uh, he saw the dead poster that I was holding at that point and was like, this is all inspired by the dead, man. I was on the road with them from 87 to 95. And we had a nice little talk about that. And uh, he told me that his favorite show was the Warlocks show in, I think that was 89 in Hampton, Virginia. But he said that it was awesome. He was right on the rail for that. We had a good dead talk. So that was pretty sweet. And then on our way back to North Carolina, we st- saw a store called Grateful Pets right. that had the dancing bears on the signage. They had a, a purple building and peace sign in on it on like the side of their brick and mortar structure. So if you're looking for a pet store in the greater Charlotte, North Carolina area, I think it's in Huntersville, North Carolina, near the Carolina Raptor Center, if anyone's in that area, go check out Grateful Pets. uh, it's worth your time. So also in the days between, by the time this episode comes out, I will have taken a visit to upstate New York, a place near and dear to your heart. Shout out. Yeah. Yeah. And I will be staying with my friends, Joe and faith faith's parents get a shout out later in this episode. When we're talking to Dave, I mentioned that her parents met at a dead show. That's not exactly true. Um, hope maybe someday we can get one or both of them on to, to tell the story themselves. They seem like wonderful people. They certainly have a great family. Faith is a great friend of of mine and my wife's. But yeah, they they met shortly before this show in 78, I think that I mentioned, and then, you know, instilled in their children a great sense of music. So, anyways, an additional shout out to them because we mentioned them in passing in the in the interview with Dave. So, June 9th, 1976 at the Boston Music Hall. We we talked a lot about kind of the surrounding details of this with Dave. So we don't need to belabor it, but do want to at least kind of set the stage just a bit. This was the first East coast show post hiatus in 1976. It was the dead's first show. Yeah. The dead's first show in the Eastern time zone since August 6th, 1974. And so Dave kind of described this as the gone fishing period when, you know, Bobby and Jerry, they were all touring with different groups but not as the Grateful Dead and so he had actually seen the Jerry Garcia band the previous year in 75 and the hiatus I mean the dead were really together the whole time I mean they recorded and released an album in 75. It's not like they just went away but they weren't touring at least and so this was the first time the East Coast had gotten a taste of live Grateful Dead music in almost two years who's in the band kind of the the same cast of characters that we talked about in our last episode? in 74 with the addition of mickey hart now back in the fold so we're back to two drummer dead for this show interesting time in music uh this show june of 1976 the top album was the rolling stones black and blue number two really the entire top five is i I think worth breaking down number two is at the speed of sound by wings paul mccartney uh yep uh number three frampton comes alive I think probably an album that's just like ubiquitous when it comes to 70s music.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And one that we talked about last time because part of it was recorded at Winterland where our last show took place. Here and There by Elton John is number four. And then number five, Presence by Led Zeppelin. Wow. The, the top Billboard song, Silly Love Songs by Wings. Uh-huh. A good song. I mean, still like you listen to it. I listened to it uh, when I saw that it was the top song. I was like, yeah, I can see why this song was massive. Really good pop music. Number two, "Get Up and Boogie" by Silver Convention. I had never heard of this song. I
0: don't think I know that one.
1: I don't think you do either. <laughs> I mean, you can look it up, but it's it is just like it's just disco, and it the music video actually that I saw is really kind of funny because. It's like keeps cutting to the audience and all of them look like not just uninterested, but like unhappy to be there watching this. (laughs) It's so weird. You think about disco and it's like people are on their feet dancing. And this is not the vibe Uh the silver convention video. 1976. The the top singles chart is pretty interesting. It is. uh, I mean, the top song of the year, the top selling single is dancing queen by ABBA. Uh, Well, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Monster. It, it came out just a couple of weeks after this. It debuted and then the album that it was on came out in August and then it was just the number one song for the rest of the year in the US. So disco had like fully, I think it's fair to say, taken root in the culture yeah. by 76. And we get a taste of that in this show, actually. Birthdays on June 9th. A man who's been in the news all the time lately, Johnny Depp. Oh, Yep. Uh, rapper and actor uh, Natalie Portman. Her oh, okay. birthday is June 9th. Some music icons Cole Porter, Jackie Wilson, and Les Paul, all born on June 9th. Wow. And a man who is near and dear to both of our hearts, Dick Vitale. Yeah. Happy birthday to Dickie V on June 9th. A few deaths in the recent years on uh, June 9th. Adam West, probably best known as Batman. Yeah. Uh, and Bushwick, Bushwick Bill of Ghetto Boys. How about notable events in history on June 9th? This is the biggest one that I found. Secretariat won the Triple Crown on this date in
0: 1973. Oh, wow. Very big
1: deal. Yeah. So that's kind of a cool one. So nice historical day, 6976. All right. So what about 1976 for the dead? They're coming off of 1975, which was off tour. They played four shows that year. Uh, no support for their album that came out that year, Blues for Allah, which was recorded in 1975 and released. It was recorded in early 1975 and released in September 1975. The four shows, I'm pretty sure all of them were just benefits. They were all in the greater San Francisco mm-hmm. area and pretty small deals. The most famous show from '75, I think, without question, is One from the Vault, that show where you get the like amazing Help Slip Frank intro. They're already like playing Help on the Way while Bill Graham's introducing them. It's awesome. And that one was at, um, I think the American music hall in San Francisco. And uh, other than that, I I don't think I've heard any of the other shows from 75 in 1976. They started touring just a week before this show. So they played two shows in Portland, Oregon on June 3rd and June 4th. And then they went out East to kind of start this East to West road trip and tour in earnest four nights at the Boston music hall, including this one, and that was the beginning of, of that tour. So also in 1976, you have solo albums from Jerry Garcia, the Reflections album. It features, featured uh, three familiar Grateful Dead songs at the time. They Love Each Other, Must Have Been the Roses, and Comes a Time. And one song that would soon become very familiar to Grateful Dead fans, um, the first song on the album, Might As Well, which the Dead then brought into their live repertoire. So that album came out in February. In March, Bob and his band Kingfish released their self-titled album, which included Lazy Lightning and Supplication as the first two songs. And interestingly to me, a Marty Robbins cover, uh, the song Big Iron, that I'm surprised never made it into the Dead's live repertoire. I'm, I've not heard Bob sing that song. I have not heard this album, I'll admit. But I'm, I'm kind of curious now to hear what it sounds like. Given what he does to Marty Robbins' uh, El Paso, I'm sure it would be a good cover. Oh, I guess so. yeah. yeah.
2: To the town of Oafria, wrote a stranger one fine day. Heartless spoke to folks around him, didn't have too much to say. No one dared ask for business, no one dared to make the slip. Stranger there among them, had a big iron on his Big iron on his
1: so two weeks after this show, The Dead's first it. live album since Europe 72 was released, the embattled Steal Your Face album. I think Dave mentions that in our interview. Mm-hmm. Pretty mediocre recording quality, and also just like the song selections are kind of weird. I own it on vinyl, and I've listened to it maybe twice. Not not mm. my favorite. And also, I mean, now a with the wealth of live recordings that we have. It's like, there's really no need to listen to it. So the tour, as I said, this this show in Boston, I think, depending on how you view those Portland, Oregon shows, I think that this really begins the summer tour in earnest uh, because you have those two dates and then four days off and then these ones. I almost feel like those were kind of warm ups for what was to come. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not sure if the Dead view it that way, but their June 76 box set begins with the show after this one from June 10th. So I don't know; they might view it that way as well. This tour went from, it was their first tour since October of 74, and they performed at the Boston Music Hall in Boston, like I said, for four nights, then to an old familiar home, the Beacon Theater in New York for two nights, the Capitol Theater in Passaic, New Jersey, also a very familiar haunt for three nights, the Tower Theater in Upper Derby, PA. Oh, yeah.
0: Driven through Upper Derby many times, yeah, on the way from Central New York to Philly. You got to go through there.
1: Right. And so I, I will admit I have not driven through upper Darby. I think my uncle Chris used to live there before he moved to North Wales, which is on the other side of uh, Philadelphia. Shout out to uncle Chris and North Wales, Pennsylvania, (laughs) but I'm familiar with upper Darby. It's kind of like a, a suburb almost of Philly, isn't it? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And I think it's pretty close to Villanova college.
1: Oh, okay. That makes, but you've never been to the tower theater to be clear.
0: No, 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 no. Just driven through it, like through that town quite a bit. Okay,
1: Gotcha. And then, So that was for four nights, and then they ended the tour with four nights at the Auditorium Theater in Chicago. So that was as far west as this tour brought them. This is a really beloved tour of The Grateful Dead. Pretty much all of it has been released. You've got The Road Trips, Volume 4, Number 5, which is how this show came out, Uh, two download series releases, Dave's Picks, Volume 28, and then just two years ago, a massive June 1976 box set. So really a ton of ton of coverage for for this show or for these shows. Okay, the venue itself. We get into a little bit of this with Dave, but uh I'll just mention a few things. Originally there were or historically there have been two different venues that were called the Boston Music Hall. There's this one, which is now called the Wong Theater. It's located on Tremont Street right in the, the center of Boston. And then there's the Orpheum Theater that Dave and I talked about a little bit because both of us have seen shows there. That's a cool little venue. It's like you have to walk down an alley and then all of a sudden there's just just this huge marquee that says the orpheum it's just really kind of tucked back right near fenway and that's also a cool venue but that originally opened as the boston music hall and now it's the orpheum the capacity of this venue is 3500 at the time the dead were there they sold between 27 and 3500 tickets Uh, this venue was originally known as the metropolitan theater and then renamed the music hall in 1962. Was a pretty thriving place into the late 70s, but by then it had become pretty outdated. And so in the early 80s, they went through this huge renovation period, and really built it back up to to its past and former glory. And uh, and now it's a, a huge venue in, or not? I shouldn't say a huge venue because I said what the capacity is, but a, a very popular venue in Boston. It's co-booked by the MSG Group, and so a lot of off like Broadway touring, they'll hit this when they come yeah. through Boston. If you look at what's going on there in the next couple months, they do have some some good names. Pavement, Craftwork, uh, they have a bunch of big comedians that are going through there. So still still a, a very active venue. righty. well then uh, let's get into the interview with Dave. We had a great time speaking with him. And uh, Dave, if you're listening, thank you again for uh, joining us. So without any any more delay, Dave Davis. Our guest today is Dave Davis. He runs the phenomenal website, GratefulSeconds.com and the accompanying Twitter account at Grateful Seconds. From 2015 to 19, he published 500 posts of what I would call just pure gold on his website. It's a multimedia experience. It'll bring you closer to the Grateful Dead and deeper in your deadheadedness. And um, it's additionally uh, just a go-to source of ours when we do research for these episodes. So without further ado, Dave Davis, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you.
2: Thanks for having me, Alex and David. This will uh, be fun. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. So quick background um, on how this came to be. You were posting about your first Grateful Dead show, which I just mentioned was June 9th 1976 at the Boston Music Hall and we said that it's one of our favorite shows. I think when I started to really you know get on the bus get into the dead this was my first favorite Grateful Dead show and we said do you want to talk about us with this and you said yeah let's do it and so so now here we are that was kind of the the thing that kicked us off and what what I was kind of surprised by when I read you know as I've read your website you had actually been to a JGB show before this 76 show, right? Your your first exposure.
2: That's because I was 16 years old. I went to prep school outside Boston. And before that I lived in Maine. And so there weren't, you know, I could see people like Aerosmith and Queen in Maine, but or Foghat, but but there weren't any dead. And I had just started getting into the dead when I started to go to prep school in the fall of 75. I was in a record store in Cambridge and I and I saw some ticket thing on the wall that said. Jerry Garcia band's going to be playing in, in uh Boston. So, it, uh, so Garcia was playing, and, and also we are you know outside of the dead during that kind of gone fishing period after the Winterland 74 shows. So um it was the only available dead related thing I could see was that uh, that, that original Jerry Garcia band with Nikki Hopkins. What a tremendous band that was.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You you've written, I think, before about the impact your brother had on your fandom. Did he kind of start you off getting into the dead and Jerry Garcia or was it, was that not the case?
2: I have a brother named Ralphie, but he's younger than me. I oh. was more um, focal point of my group of friends who first saw the dead and then four would go the next time and like that. So,
1: Gotcha. You, you're the one who expanded the web outward.
2: Correct. <laughs> right. Also, also at Andover, when I was in prep school, quite a few people were into the dead, but I was known as the guy who was into the dead first. So, how
0: and how did that happen? I mean, how did you, how did you dive in so deep? You know, who or who brought you in that deep?
2: Okay, well, if you go back to when I was about fourteen years old, nineteen seventy-three, in the summer, I was a little bit of a juvenile delinquent, and a, a friend, Doug Sides, and I broke into the Bates College radio station at, in Lewiston, Maine, and found all these albums in the middle of the night. And all the, all, there were all these Grateful Dead albums like Europe 72 that had big black, magic market that said, please do not steal this record. So obviously I stole it. <laughs> and and it, it was embarrassing. My father worked at that college and like the, I was found out about a week later and I had to go bring everything back. And, uh, but that's where I originally was Europe 72 seeing well, the uh, ice cream kid, this is all cool stuff. And, you know, like most rock fans back then we were listening to like the first Led Zeppelin record and, you know, various little rock things, Aerosmith, New England, stuff like that. And then, but then I just happened to start listening more and more to the dead. I, I you know, I heard American Beauty, I heard Europe 72, uh, and I just loved that stuff. And then Garcia played at the Orpheum in Boston when I was 16, that fall, my first fall at prep school. And, and, uh, and I went from there and, um, and actually being, being able to go into Boston and Cambridge all, every weekend in 75, when I was you know, 16 years old, I, I went to used record stores, found all kinds of bootleg dead albums and you know all kinds of San francisco bands. And that's how I started liking them. And uh, I was very fortunate to um, to see a whole bunch of shows after that.
1: That's great. So you mentioned the Orpheum and the show that we're talking about a lot today was at the Boston Music Hall. So two different venues, the Boston Music Hall. It's now, I think, called the Wong Theater. And it's right. more in the theater district, kind of on Tremont Street. Yeah. Can, you, can you tell us about this venue? Because I've never been and I've, I've seen pictures. It looks beautiful on the inside. This like very ornate lobby.
2: yeah Yeah. you're right it was really nice too but i mean the music hall i saw some tremendous shows there and um uh the bob dylan rolling thunder review show and you know a bunch of dead shows but um what was really good about the music hall is that when because i when i went to prep school um it was it was right one bus line right to the Combat zone in Boston, right near where the where the music hall was, just a beautiful place. I mean, I think there's like thirty rows on the floor and balcony. And in my first show, I was lucky to see the dead in on orchestra, like albeit wow. near the. My second show, three nights later, June twelfth, I, I got to see it from the balcony, and and back then. The police didn't stop you from sitting in the aisle. So you just like stroll <laughs> down to the front of the balcony. And it's, it's like the dead's playing right in front of you. It was like, it's just a beautiful, great spot to yeah. see my early dead shows.
1: That's awesome. And one thing that, so in you have an article about this show on your website. And we're going to post it in our show notes because it's just fantastic. And one thing that I love that you do on your website, you find these local articles from around the times of the show. And it's, it's just, it's so cool. I love getting to read what, you know, the local press was talking about around these shows. And one of the ones that it's, one of the things that jumped out at me in one of the Boston, I think it was the Boston Evening News, the article that you post on your site was it talked about how the dead rewarded their fans and like, you know, old family with this show. So one thing that I didn't realize about this show is that the tickets were mostly sold through the dead mailing list. Is that how you got tickets to these yeah. shows?
2: Yeah, see, um, so I guess when I started, you know, getting the dead albums in that in that era seventy four seventy five,
0: mm-hmm.
2: it's kind of the era of round records. And round records were all the individual dead albums. I think like I think I think Kingfish was on there, and in, in Garcia's record, I think Reflections was on there. Definitely like Keith and Donna album, and you know all those in all the Mickey Hart's album. Through that. I was on that dead mailing list, the famous dead mailing list, like, you know, like that they started back with uh, Skull and Roses, who, tell us who you are, where you live. And so I started getting like the little newsletters that they would put out, the dead would put out. And then I saw that show with Garcia in 75, and then early in 76, got this little notice at my mailbox at school that said, hey, you know, we're gonna have this little tour of small theaters. And uh, here's how you can, here's how you can buy tickets. You can only get so many and blah, blah, blah. So I didn't have credit cards or anything back then. So I just had to go get like money orders and like I could barely get enough money for like two tickets for the, 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 the ninth and two tickets for the 10th or something like that. And, um, and that's how I did it. And then um, sometime in May, I just go into my mailbox at an unusual time. And there they were in a little envelope. There were the small little tickets that are like on my website about this. And um, that was the first time I ordered mail order tickets in, in my entire career of going to dead shows. I never was shut out. I, I, I got New Year's Eve tickets six years in a row. Wow. And I always, wow. got them. and I, and I always wondered if they like kind of knew me from the old days or something, because <laughs> a lot of people I know wouldn't get their tickets and, and I just always got them. I either was lucky or something.
1: So. That would make sense though, that there would be some names that would stand out. And they've been like, I've been seeing this name for seven years. We're going to give this guy tickets. He's one of our old friends. <laughs>
2: I never asked for too many. It was like two or four or whatever. But no.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Like, the- I, don't I mean, I, I really don't know exactly how that worked, but it just seemed kind of more than coincidence that I always got tickets. So. Yeah,
1: that's really cool. So you put in the mail order tickets. There's this great day in May where you go to the mailbox. You find that they're yeah. there. And so then you're in prep school around Boston, so it probably didn't take much planning to figure out how you were going to get to the show this night, right? Like you didn't have to plan too much.
2: On the, on the 9th, June 9th was uh, the last exam I had. Wow. We used to have exams over like a period of a couple of days. That was a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And I think they had exams through Friday, but for some reason I only had exams through the night. So I could just, I, I finished that up and I went right into Boston and I met a buddy of mine and we arranged to stay at his brother's place at Harvard. Okay. So, uh, which we had done, we did a number of times. So we got the key from the place in Harvard. Then we went and hung out outside the place, and um, it was and just got into the show. And 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 it was it's so interesting because, you know, after seeing like ten or twenty or fifty shows, you kind of know know what to expect. I had no idea what they. I had no idea what they would play. I don't know what they like might open with anything like that that you that all of us learned over time. So it was kind of like it's kind of really fun in a way to think back. That I have no idea what they're going to play. So, I was
1: I was wondering that actually. I'm really glad that you brought that up because one thing that your website. Uh, helped me learn about this show. I had known that, you know, a lot of these shows they hadn't played in a long time, obviously high time and St. Stephen being the really big ones, but there are some that you talked about and you're like, this was their East coast debut of this song. And in, you know, from this vantage point in 2022, you can look back and go, okay. So they played this one in Portland five nights ago. And it's interesting that then they brought it back. I was trying to put myself in the headspace of fans who were at the show where it's like, I have no idea what they were playing in Portland. You know, that's five days ago. It might as well have been on a different planet. It's happening across the country. There's not websites like yours or Twitter accounts where you can see what the set lists were. And so you're just kind of, like you said, going in blind, I guess.
2: Well, yeah. You know, Blair Jackson points that out. He did the liner notes in the, in the, in the CD release of the show. Mm-hmm. And he's like, fans didn't know. Didn't did we didn't know what they played in Portland? We didn't know they brought back the wheel, you know. If, yeah. All those things like that. It made it more exciting in some ways.
1: Yeah, I can only imagine. I mean, and it's an exciting set list, really. Have you do you listen to this show very often? Um, given that it was your first?
2: Yeah, I I listen to it quite a bit. And a lot, I a lot I will listen to the first five songs or and or uh, the beginning of the second set. I mean, those really, those really focal points of the show. Yeah,
1: I can see you
2: know, that. A lot so, of walk, and I'll I'll listen to like you know forty five minutes of that or something. You know, that's like gotcha. It, although the seventy seven shows <laughs> are so good too, I was yeah. fortunate to see so many of those.
1: So, so to quickly sidetrack us from this conversation about 76 because i'm really loving it but the most recent article that you posted on your website you kind of talked about travel to see the grateful dead which uh-huh. I, I thought was fascinating when you talked about how many miles you had to travel to see your first 11 shows in the east coast and then when you moved to the west coast how you only had to travel like 60 miles to see 11 shows that was kind of amazing to me
2: well the reason i moved to the bay area was because of the dead you know the reason yeah. i hope started to move there and I never, I, I never had to go more than you know, the furthest one from Berkeley was Frost. In like in, in and I saw like I saw about forty show, forty shows about in the East Coast and about forty shows in the West Coast. So I had like two eras. Yeah. And on the East on the East Coast, you're always driving two and I lived in Maine, so mostly, so you always drive in two or three hours or more. Mm-hmm. And six hours and whatever and like in, in the early days I would even hitchhike and stuff. But um, then I got friends with cars. But on the West Coast, I you could walk to the Greek. You could walk to the Berkeley Community Theater. Uh, it's like ten minute BART ride to the Oakland Auditorium, or or fifteen minutes to San Francisco Civic. It, it was just it was a different world, and like, and then, and then on the, because I was, this was the '80s, and in the '80s, I would pick and choose more. Like, I wouldn't go to every show. You mm.
1: know? So, in '77, though, were you picking and choosing, or were you just saying, "I'm going to go to every show I could possibly go to"?
2: I, I, can, I In 1977, I was like, "I'm going to go to every show I can go to," but like, I went to eight on wow. random days, right? Seven of those have all been officially released by the dead. So it's like some I guess a lot of shows have been released in 77. But in the when I was still in in high school, I would only go on Saturday nights because I could on Friday I could leave school and say, I'm going up, I'm going home to Maine for the weekend to sign up. It wouldn't hassle me, and then I could hitchhike to wherever. So so I went all the Saturday shows, Springfield, April 23rd. The Palladium in New York, April 30th, Boston Garden, May 7th, and the the anniversary show from this weekend, the Hartford show. The yeah. the amazing Terrapin show. All those I saw in high school, but I I, I could only go on Saturday nights. Yes. And they're all and then I went to English town with my buddies, and then I saw three shows in upstate New York and Nagarborough. Yep. They're all kind of well known too.
1: The Colgate one and the Rochester one, yeah. um, and, Bingham, and
2: then- oh, those three. So I, I was—I I went when I could go, and like like those shows, I was—I had just become a freshman in college, so I had more flexibility. But I still had to hitchhike from Maine up to those shows. Wow! <laughs> <laughs> and, when, and when I hitchhiked those shows, there was only two shows. There was only the Rochester and the Binghamton show. And there's some lore about the Colgate show which basically was the homecoming dance at Colgate, plus about 400 deadheads who figured out there was a show. I swear that's that's (laughs) all the tickets that they sold outside the pool. How did
1: you get... So Rochester and Binghamton, for our fans who don't know, that's a pretty far drive. What is that, like three hours,
2: maybe? Three,
0: three, two and a half, yeah.
2: Well, the hard part was hitchhiking from Brunswick, Maine to to Ithaca. I can't imagine.
0: I can't imagine that either. So I'm well, from 20 minutes yeah. south of Colgate and I can tell you that there's like, no one's just going and passing through. Like, <laughs> you, you have to be going there for a purpose.
2: Well, it would take me all day, whatever. I left in the morning the day before that was on the third, uh, the day after the Toronto show, they, they had the day off, but I came there. And then I stayed with a friend of mine at the Ithaca college. And I didn't really remember how I, we had gotten to all the shows that week until his friend was on a dead podcast called on the lot or something, but um, yeah. he was the guy that drove us to all the shows. So you just had to have a friend, you have a friend. And then like, there's all, there's like three of us. And we're going to Colgate, we're going to Rochester, we're going to Binghamton. And then the next morning I checked back to Maine, you know, it was, that's, that's what you did to see shows, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's amazing. I mean, those, Those memories, too, I can only imagine the fun of figuring out how to get there, how to get back is part of what makes them so memorable and special.
2: Yeah, yeah, literally, I had to hitchhike to uh, that in 77 to, to New York City for the Palladium show and back from Hartford for that show. I mean, it's like and all the upstate New York shows
1: amazing so okay let's get back to uh 76 because uh this we're so excited to talk to you about this show so you said uh that a lot of times you listen to the first five songs in set one which is just a powerhouse you've got cold rain and snow is the opener then cassidy scarlet begonia is so early in set one. so the cold rain and snow open is excellent do you remember like were you very familiar with that song when they started playing it did you immediately recognize what it was
2: i knew it from that um from that uh was, was that's a steal your face record that's yep. not that good i mean yeah. horrible recording yep um but i knew it from there i knew the dead had played it i didn't realize at the time that the dead had only played it like twice since 1973 yeah wow. they, they, they played it earlier you know they played it during like europe 72 era but um so, but so I I I kind of knew that song from some like records like that. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't realize that they never had played Cassidy. I mean, they only yeah. played Cassidy once before the two Portland shows.
1: Yeah. It's like a whole but, new world.
2: <laughs> but the other three it's like I was kind of it's kind of like I I was listening a lot to Reflections and so, like, it wasn't surprising that they played songs, like, from Reflections. So that would be, like, They Love Each Other. Or, or, or Crazy Fingers.
1: Oh, and Crazy Fingers. That's right. And that was the first time they played that on the East Coast, wasn't it?
2: At your show. Yeah. it was. It's also a tremendous version. Oh, yeah. It's
0: so good.
2: <laughs> There's um, There was a release of the New Year 76 Cow Palace show. I don't know, 10 no a little more than 10 years ago and they had a bonus cd disc that had music never stopped and crazy fingers from the show on it Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and i was listening to that yesterday Mm -hmm. that 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 particular version and i mean it sparkles those those tunes sparkle the recordings that the recordings that whole week just are in boston are just they're they're beautiful
1: they really are you can hear everyone so well and like with the you can hear the drummers great i think i've said this on our show before but i don't think that donna ever sounded better with the dead than she did in 76 her voice sounds great it sounds like she can hear herself in the mix and she can really like she's really singing well and i just the way that especially on music never stopped because you just mentioned that her her singing in that song is really great i think
2: and and like and and looks like rain Yeah. And 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 then also into '77 stuff like the the May '77 stuff, yeah. is, is also so nice on. Yeah. But but those five okay. So those five songs to me it was like I couldn't believe later when I learned more history of the Dead and the fact that they played those those songs so early, because Scarlet Begonias had like opened two shows in '74, but you know they never played it third. I mean. Yeah the the and it was really it's really nice too because i like those um both both scarlet and um and crazy fingers they're like kind of self-contained they they don't go like they don't play them for 15 minutes they just like it's like a little self-contained it's kind of like early playing in the band you know yeah when they're kind of like evolving into a longer version so yeah. those were I just couldn't believe how good that was, and then you know, the longer I saw the dead, I was like, "Wow, I never saw a first set like that." No, wow. the beginning, of- yeah, so.
1: and then the beginning of the second set is just as great. I mean, you got the Saint Stephen, which is, I think, what brought the show to my attention in the first place was seeing that there had been this long of a gap—five years—between the last time they had played played Saint Stephen and this one. And so, the first time I heard this show, and I I remember sending it to to David. And saying, you need to listen to the audience's reaction to the first two notes of this song. All you hear is, dun, dun, and you guys went
0: Just ballistic. Go nuts. Yeah.
1: This fan base was this tuned in to what was going on and pre-internet, pre-anything, they recognized that, the, you know, you guys recognize you were seeing something special. They haven't played the song in so long. And here we go. That cheer, that that reaction just still gives me goosebumps. It's amazing.
2: Yeah, but look look at the audience in Boston and, you know, the, just that, that, that remarkable 74 show at the Garden and um, the 73 one where they play like this, like unnamed jam for 45 minutes. It's called various things on various recordings, for that that. But it's called like Heaven Help Jam and and mm-hmm. and, and then all those those three shows they played at the Boston Music Hall at the end of '73 that they opened and ended the sh- uh, the the series of shows with Morning Dew, mm-hmm. and then even before you know yeah
1: '69 at the ark in Boston those are right. great shows.
2: So Boston was always a big dead town. I mean. Huge, huge dead town. So um, I, I'm almost speechless when we talk about that St. Stephen. And like, I knew it was special just from, from the, um, the reaction. And unfortunately, when, on, when the dead released it on Road Trips 4.5, they kind of they chopped off all that stuff. I think they should have put it on. Like, that's why I, on my website, I have that little blurb at the beginning. I would always do that when I, in fact, when I, when I got a when I, th- this was originally, you could only find this on audience an audience tape of the show mm-hmm. for years and years. There wasn't a soundboard recording of this. So eventually when I found a soundboard recording, I personally just blocked off a little sound of this beginning part, and put it in to the, um, so you could hear that because that's like special.
1: Yeah. It's, it's such a, crucial part of the dna of this show hearing that crowd mm-hmm. recognition and reaction it's amazing
2: yeah like i i didn't know they hadn't played it since halloween 71 you know i didn't know any of that stuff when i was went to the, but I, I knew it sounded special and i knew of course you knew saint stephen
1: mm-hmm.
2: but um you know but but you didn't realize wow they haven't played it and um what's really cool about this version of saint stephen is just like all the jams that they have in it that, you know, later on are truncated because they're gonna go in and not fade away in most versions. And like, what will be the answer to the answer man? And then they play like another seven minutes of like, you know, once only jamming. It's just, and then when they go into eyes of the world, I don't know. I, sometimes I call it the backwards one or the reverse one. Yep. E- effectively, they p- they play the whole instrumental version from '74 that comes after the lyrics. Yeah. So that's uh, that's another co- really m- monstrously cool thing that they do.
1: Oh, it's awesome! Yeah, it's like eight straight minutes of just jamming before they even start singing. I had not thought of that as a backwards version until I read that you wrote that and as soon as i read that i was like yep that's exactly what that is oh yeah,
2: so i recommend i recommend um blair jackson's um liner notes too he's a real yeah. he's a real writer I'm Just <laughs> a, you know, but when he talks about this kind of stuff really well so yeah
1: well if and for our audience if you want to read that go to david's website because you were kind enough to post a lot of those liner notes on there so we can read them there which is great
2: there's another really interesting review of this show that I should put up sometime from the, um, taping compendium. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Jeff Madsen's review of this show. Oh, cool. so it's very, it's very, you can just see how much of a fan he was knowledgeable guy. Yeah. So That's great. I, I, I thought he added a lot to dark Star orchestra when he replaced John and, um, by, because he'll play like the old dead stuff which yeah used to play but his, his 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 review is there's a lot of reviews my my first notes about this were when um in in 2007 at, at the dead site dead.net site um they 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 listed all the concerts and said hey do you have any comments about it and i made a little comment Mm-hmm. I think I'm the first. I was like first, you know, even when you go like, first. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I. It was uh, from June 4th, 2007, and I put up. Yep, yeah, this is my first show, and and then oh, good, I have some uh, typos there. Like I know do. My- <laughs> I'm kind of like you of typos, so <laughs> I. That's because my I consider my my website is more like the lot not for
1: <laughs> it's like the dead man you got to have warts and all that's what we love about it i mean that's right, what we yeah. love about the dead it's something that adds some charm to your website it's great you know yeah,
2: i got my friend Jessa now who's helping me with all the coordination of the the, the continuation of my writing so I, you need somebody to help you so
1: yeah that's great so i one thing on the header of your website it says from 2015 through 2019 where did you have plans of putting it on hold for a little while or did you put it on hold really-
2: really haven't written that much since then
1: mm-hmm.
2: i really i and uh, plus i just might have forgotten i said that <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's been more of a slow trickle rather than a regular side project for you since then
2: yeah well i i kind of finished what i wanted to do for that project and now i've i i'm actually retired from working and okay, I'm, mm. and i'm working on a what i hope will have become a, a book project on the dead. so
1: Great. Nice. Wow. Well, we'll be excited to kind of keep following along. And
2: yeah, you are going to wait five years and say it. So.
1: <laughs> hey, five years? That's fine. I will <laughs> wait five years. I'm ready for it. So, a couple more uh, questions for you about this show and then just about yourself and your history. So, you, you get Mo- Monster St. Stephen into Eyes of the World into an all- also great Let It Grow. Really, the whole second set of the show I thought was great. But then, what did you make in the moment of the Franklin's Tower encore?
2: To me, it was like they ran out of time. <laughs> That's what I thought. And and, yeah. and it turns out that was the only time they ever played Franklin's Tower great. as an encore. Yeah, And they never played Helping Way Slipknot Frank as an encore either. So it's the yeah. only time they ever played it as an encore, which is kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, it, it, it is. And it, it sounds great. I mean, it, it feels like kind of natural, I think. Um, and it's a great version. Uh, Jerry's voice sounds tremendous in it. Um, but yeah, it's kind of cool. Well,
0: Does it make you appreciate it a little more when you look back and you're like, that's the only time they ever did that? I,
2: I love all that stuff. And like, I, t- I take claim to all that stuff. Like, <laughs> all, all my friends are not, all my dead researcher friends, when they say, oh, this is the only time, blah, blah, blah. And I go, oh, yeah, yeah, I was there. <laughs> it, well, it, it's, 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 it, it felt. I don't know It was my first show so I didn't know but I, I was surprised they only played Franklin's Tower but I as I recall it was probably close to midnight as I recall that stuff yeah as, you know I'll tell you and I want to end another funny thing it's okay so I was writing down the, the list of the songs on the in set one when I was at the show and um, I was noticing they start all about like 10 minutes apart it's like 7.30, 7.41, 7, 7.49. They're all like 10 minutes. And then I was like, wow, dead. all their songs are 10 minutes long. And then I realized later it's because other songs are like six or seven minutes long. And then they're taking two or three minutes. This was the era that they took so long between songs. Yeah. Especially in the first set.
1: Little tuning breaks. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So you mentioned earlier that 6.12, A Few Nights Later, was your second Grateful Dead show. And the encore for that show is equally amazing. You got a Sugar Magnolia into US Blues into Sunshine Daydream. And um, Dave, you were actually at my two favorite Sunshine Daydream shows, this one and then New Year's 81 when they started set two with Sugar Mag and ended the set with uh, Sunshine Daydream. And I think that this speaks to something that's very interesting about your live dead career you saw them bring back so many songs that they hadn't played in a really long time. You wrote an article about it one time. There were like 10 10 songs that they hadn't played in like five years or more and you were at the show and they brought them back. You saw all these special things like what I just mentioned. Are there any things like that that particularly stand out in your mind where you look back and you go, that was like really, really, really special?
2: Well, this show, the the, the, June 9th show is really special for that. I don't know. Okay, so like I, I was really lucky because like I saw I saw them play Saint Stephen three times. So the so first show, and then I saw it in in the Palladium in New York, mm-hmm. April 30th, 77. And then I saw the last one they played in uh in 83 at Halloween in Marin County. Wow. It's like you know, in 83 I wasn't impressed with too much of what they were doing. You know, I was I got I was spoiled. <laughs> But um, I mean, I love I love all those cool things they did, like even like on the second show, I saw it on the June 12th when they play, not only did they do that little, you know, U.S. blues in the middle of of, of Sugar Magnolia, you know, split. <laughs> they also played Let It Grow Into War, Fred, Into Comes a Time. So when like you play two Jerry songs in a row like that was a pretty rare thing. Yeah. You don't realize it yet. Still, I was too young to really realize it. By 77, I knew they were special. In fact, I forgot my four St. Stephen in Binghamton, New York. Those shows, like, just little runs. little The runs in upstate New York wasn't exactly what they played, but they played everything. And, like, you know, they would do, like, that Rochester show where Phil opened the second set with his own bass solo for a while. all these things like that and then in the west coast there was a lot of stuff too which would either occur mostly at new year shows or just shows at the greek where they just it wasn't necessarily that they you know play china doll and and comes a time in morning doing the same set you know which is cool but 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 it's 85 so it's less cool (laughs) to me like (laughs) i'd rather just see another 77 show you know in that kind of that's fair enough. I don't know. It's a really good question. I was very fortunate, but I'm also, I think there was a lot of other deadheads who were fortunate. Like me, I just had time to to spend writing down and researching and figuring out what I actually saw.
1: Yeah. Well, that's fair. Uh, I'm, I'm very appreciative that you did have the time because I love reading about it. <laughs> that uh, Another thing that was a highlight for me on the June 12th show is Mission in the Rain. I... I'll admit I had never heard the Dead play that song. I'd only ever heard JGB until I listened to that set list to prepare for our talk today. And I like John Kahn as much as the next guy, but what Phil does on the bass on that on that show at June 12th is uh, it's something special. That's a great version of that song.
2: I think they played it five or six times that month. Yeah, it's the only time they ever played it. And um, there was probably a trade. I think the Garcia band and Dead had like a trade on songs. So seriously, because yeah. um, I think either Joe or Corey have written about that about how um, they decided that they need Garcia Band needs more money, so they're gonna allow them to play Shigari and they love each other and and they kind of like split the songs. Uh-huh. Ruben and Charisse, you know, yeah. like that. The Dead played it once, I think, or twice. But. Yeah. Mission the rain. I mean, that that blows me away, and and I was really happy to see that on on the uh, road trips four or five that they put out, you know those killer songs, "Mission in the Rain" from the first set, uh, "The Wheel" which opened the second set by itself,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and then they put "Comes a Time," but they didn't put Warfright into "Comes a Time," but uh, yeah, th- it's okay.
1: <laughs> they ran out of CD space. <laughs> I,
2: I thought that song was called "Only Love to Fill" from a. From a bootleg, I have of like a 71 show or something. Yeah. What yeah. a tremendous song that is. So great. Yeah.
1: Dave, do you have any more questions about uh, 76? D- David, do you have any questions about 76? I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: no, I think we touched them all.
1: Well, one thing, one I've got one more. One thing that you said to us, Dave, was that you love this era. And you're, I mean, you're extremely knowledgeable about it, obviously. Your name is in the liner notes on the seven, June 76 box set. Is that correct?
2: uh that was thanks to jesse jesse jones yeah what a guy that guy is too yeah
1: well um, i mean that's a it's a great and deserved gesture you've written a lot about it what about the what about 76 is there anything about the way that they were playing the way the set lists were constructed that makes it like particularly special or particularly beloved for you
2: i wrote a piece on my website once about like 76 things that are make that make 1976 so awesome and i wrote it a while ago so but um what i like about 76 okay so 76 in the in the in the shows i saw in june and then i saw a show in august in Echo park you know there's they're playing a lot of songs they're playing all these great songs some of which they aren't they're going to stop playing Mm -hmm. um And you know all that Saint Stephen stuff. There's not that many songs, but they're flipping them around in really interesting ways. They're doing these like crazy fingers into Big River, twenty-minute first set blasts and stuff like that. But what's really interesting to me, also, is after August. No, no, actually, the July shows in San Francisco, and then the fall show, the, the fall tour, which. I didn't really know about during the time. During the time, you didn't know. So, like, um, I only learned about what's going on in, in, in July in the fall when I got my Dead Relics issue, like, three months later. That would say, like, okay, the Dead just played at the Capitol Center in Landover, and Bobby has a beard, and, um, and they're playing It's All Over Now. And, you know, they're doing all this. The the, the stuff they do in the fall is just really worth checking out you know all those shows like the, the show in detroit on the third and in columbus ohio on september 30th all those shows leading up to the shows with the who at the, mm-hmm. and a little bit later which are also pretty amazing where they do stuff like uh dancing in the streets into warf rat in the first set which yeah. they did the first night stuff like that there's a lot of and uh, that supplication in the middle of playing in the band down, at, I think it's at Duke or, or maybe it's at University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's amazing too. All all that stuff, that once only mm-hmm. stuff. So, and then of course, New Year's is just a tremendous show too. So yeah, very unique in its way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for spending so much of your morning talking with us. I mean, I've loved it. We have, if you have a couple more minutes, we have a, what we call the smokestack lightning round, where we're going to ask you a bunch of quick questions about the dead. Do you want to? Yeah. All right, cool.
2: you have a favorite dead studio album dead studio album i don't know maybe 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 a, a, moxa, a moxa, moxa okay uh,
1: was that one that was stolen from the bates the bates college radio station <laughs>
2: so, and, 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 and i just want you to know i've recently made a large donation to 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 the library i mean to the radio station
0: and it's
1: beautiful that's great well we love supporting college radio so that's also great too and bates college good for them <laughs> do you have a favorite official live release whether it dave's picks dick's picks road trips anything like that or a box set even
2: well i always like um dick's picks three yeah the may 22nd show in in florida pembroke spine that has that those four Garcia songs in a row, including just the inspiration part.
1: Yep, you got a, a nice, fun, uh, finiculi finicula tuning session in that show too, which <laughs> I always thought was really fun. True. <laughs> yep. Um, okay. What is, is there a live show that you think you've listened to the most of all the live shows over the years?
2: Jeez, that's a that's a that's a hard one. <laughs> so. um See maybe a 70. You know what? It might, it might be one of the the November 77 shows in upstate New York. Listen yeah.
1: to those. That's okay. That's a good one. That's one of those shows at the War Memorial in Rochester is where one of my good friend's father-in-laws met his mother-in-law. So I've I've always liked those shows a lot. Yep. In the
2: 77 show?
1: Yep. Yeah. I always love hearing stories like that too. Okay, do you remember uh, a live show that you were particularly excited to see in person when you were going to it?
2: Like everyone?
1: <laughs> it's a great answer. <laughs>
2: Probably, you know, like going to see them at like uh, like English town. You just knew they were going to be good, you know yeah.
1: The energy must have been just incredible too to go there with so many people.
2: Oh yeah. That, yeah. that that was like our like a mini little Stucky thing.
1: So. Yeah, very cool. Okay, is there a dead song that you've been listening to a lot lately? Like one song in particular that you've been you've been listening to quite a bit?
2: Well, I listen to "If I Have the World to Give" a lot lately.
1: Yeah, great. Okay, nice. Um, favorite band that is not the Grateful Dead?
2: Oasis. Really?
1: Wow. Okay. Wow. Okay. Nice.
2: I didn't know um, them till last year, but um, uh, for some reason, I like Oasis. So, uh,
1: they're, totally hey, they're great. Yeah, as far as uh, like uh, that's one of my sister's favorite bands, so I'm sure that she'll be happy to hear that. Shout out to you, Amy. Is there a venue that you did not see the dead at, but you wish you could have?
2: Winterland.
1: Yeah, that's a good one. Okay. Dave, do you have any other Smokestack Lightning questions? I've only got one last one.
0: I think my last one is the same as your last one. So go ahead and ask.
1: (laughs) Okay. Is there a show or a set of shows that you think would be good for us to talk about, for us to dive into for for this show?
2: Is there an era that you haven't really been, uh, that you were interested in? Because if you give me like a little era thing, I can give you that you're thinking of
1: doing. Early 80s would be great. We don't have anything about that yet. And I know that you saw a lot of great shows um, in that era. Yeah, I
2: I, I like. I, I like the Greek, I think those, those shows are interesting. People have talked about them a lot, 82 recently, because it was the anniversary. Right. Wait, you haven't covered 73 though, have you?
1: No, we have not. No? Okay.
2: okay. There's this interesting period, right prior to the invention of the playing in the band, Uncle John's band Morning Dew little song cycle, be, starting in the be October, if you look at the uh, you know look at the set list starting in late October to the middle of November, where the, you know the Dead played the, that a few times, three times. Mm-hmm. There's a really interesting period where the Dead are like playing around with the songs, trying to figure out what to play. Like they're like playing Morning Dew into playing in the band, into you know, or Uncle John's. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're like doing this, which I think I think that's interesting. That's it's kind of an interesting um, evolution of, of of how they're playing songs, just like when you know in '77, when the dead uh, invented uh, Estimated Profit in, in Terrapin Station, how they can figure out how where to play it. Right. I think that's it, that's important. You know, is it a you know, estimated was at first a first set song mostly, Terrapin was everywhere, end of yeah. the first set, open in the second, you know uh because yesterday i was listening to the Hartford show they're like they have they have a grasp on all the the last song on the may tour they have a grasp on all the songs and so like these two new powerhouse songs are like in in the mix now so they're like trying to figure out exactly how to play them and when to play them and that's the kind of stuff i like to go but you didn't know whether they were going to open with terrapin or or whether they were going to encore with terrapin you know like that kind of thing
1: beautiful well we will definitely do that uh, i'm excited to talk about it and thank you for bringing it to our attention i feel,
2: feel free to talk to me anytime
1: awesome great well, it was, well it was such a pleasure talking with you thank you so much for spending some of your morning with us And, um, everyone go follow Dave at grateful seconds, go read his website. It's in my opinion, the best grateful dead website out there. So Dave, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day and, uh, hope that we'll talk to you soon.
2: Thanks, Alex and David. Take care. Take care. Bye.
0: That's Dave Davis. We are so grateful that Grateful Seconds, the man himself, took the time out to come and be with us. Um, And now let's dive into everything that he was talking about with this fantastic first five songs of set one.
1: Yeah, it was interesting that he said it that way. The first five songs. He's totally right. He is
0: right. I mean, I, I think it's the first nine songs.
1: Seven. <laughs> I think it's the first all songs, <laughs> but it's the first five. There is like some, something particularly interesting going on there. It starts with cold rain and snow, which we mentioned. This is tied for 16th highest on heady version. It's a great recording. I think that, that might be part of it. The, the audience recording that we have, or it's a, I guess it's a matrix. Cause they have a combination of audience parts and soundboard parts, which is, fantastic. That's on the live archive. You can really hear the crowd, how excited they are at mm-hmm. uh, Cold Rain and Snow. And I think that something that Dave mentioned when he was talking about the mailing list and he was talking about how, how crazy Boston was for the dead as it is. But then the fact that most of these, if not all of these people had gotten tickets through a mailing list, like it's their real fans. It's like, you know, the heads that are at this show. Which is awesome, um, and very innovative. You know, it, there, there's a point in he met, Dave mentioned uh, Blair Jackson's liner notes to this show on the road trips version. He was like, the Dead could have sold out the Boston Garden these nights if they would have wanted to. It was much bigger, but the acoustics were way worse, and it would have been not as good of a like musical product. And I think that it's indicative of the fact that when they shut it down for the hiatus, part of what they were trying to do was, you know, they went from the wall of sound. To the sound system that they had on this show, which is much more nimble, but also a much more nimble crew. They didn't have to pay salaries and deal with like forty people in their road crew anymore because they didn't have the wall of sound. And I think that maybe they felt the freedom to not have to support all of those people, and so they could go to a more intimate venue like this or like like the Capitol Theater and say like we could probably sell out the Boston Garden, or we could make it a better experience for everyone who's there, go more intimate and play for you know, the, the real heads. And I I think that you can feel that energy throughout the show right off the bat, especially with cold rain and snow with how warm the response is from the audience to some really great playing. I feel like Jerry is just crushing the song right off the bat. He just does not miss a beat.
0: He and Keith are on it all night and all this song.
1: Yeah. And Phil too. He's, he's really good throughout the show. He's just underlining everything that they're doing with some really vibrant playing. I think on this song in particular. So I've always loved the song as a show opener. Me too. It's just, it's a great way to start the show. so cold rain and snow great opener and then we get into cassidy i have laid out my thoughts on this uh one of many ways in which uncle kyle and i are aligned not our favorite dead song but i did think this was a good version the masses agree it is tied for 12th on heady version what did you think about uh the second song of the show cassidy
0: i thought i had an Excellent and very clear opening riff for both Bob and Jerry, like both of them on their separate guitars. And I think that goes to your point about the investment in the sound quality rather than just the number of ticket sales. So both guitarists standing out, Jerry and Keith each have separate moments where they shine. um, And it's kind of cool how they balance each of them to kind of come into a bit of a triumphant ending. I kind of share your thoughts with this song. This is not my favorite song overall. I thought this was a fine version. I actually didn't think it was anything special, but the masses disagree.
1: Well, I think that the interplay between the drummers is super tight on this song and that kind of helps it. But the other reason I think the masses probably like it a lot is because like a lot of songs on this set list, this was the first time they'd ever played it on the East coast. Mm. They debuted the song in 1974, the first wall of sound show. In March of 74, but then they didn't play it again for the rest of that year. Uh, It was a, you know, a song from a Bob solo album. And then they brought it back those two shows in Portland before this. And then this was the first time, this was only the fourth time they'd ever played it live and the first on the East coast. And so this was not a new song per se, if people had listened to Bob's solo album, but if they hadn't, it could have been all new Uh and definitely new as a live experience for I would think pretty much everyone in the audience and so maybe there's something about that energy going on I do really like Bob and Donna's Harmony on this song We've, we, you and I have talked about that before just liking the versions with her better than the versions with Brent but we don't need to belabor it when the next song is an all-timer <laughs> song number three Dave mentioned this in our interview with him one of the earliest they've ever played it as though he was reading your mind when you asked me about that earlier this yeah. weekend Scarlet Begonias Phil question mark exclamation point (laughs) he really takes center stage that familiar bubbly opening lick Um, but he's just taking it for a ride and it sounds great it's so when you if you for some reason were to listen to the show and not see that this was coming third and then that opening bass line hits your ears I dare you not to smile. (laughs) Just, you know, brightens brightens your right up. It is impossible not to bob your head when you're listening to this version of Scarlet Pagonias.
0: Especially at the 230 mark, where the whole band is cooking. Like early, they get hot. And then near the end, they get hot. What Bob is doing on the rhythm guitar around the 750 mark is just magical while Jerry noodles around... Uh, ahead of him. And then there's a moment at the eight minute mark where Jerry, Bob, Phil, and Keith are kind of each out doing their own thing. And then they somehow, like within 30 seconds, all mesh back together and tie it back seamlessly. And it's really, really impressive. Uh, this is the number 28 standalone Scarlet on Heady version. And I think that's more to a testament of the song Scarlet Begonias than it is like they're playing here. Cause they are playing really, really well. Yeah, they are. There are
1: 300 versions of Scarlet. So that is in the top 10% hmm. of versions, which I think is always interesting to, to note where it fits in, not just numerically, but percentile wise. And I do think that that is warrant. Every bit of that is warranted.
2: It's mm-hmm. great.
1: If anything, it should, I think it should maybe be a little bit higher because the top 25 no is it top 15 that are on the first page or top 25 top 15 i think that it's probably in page one territory but page two that's still quite good i think this is the the crown jewel of the first five and and maybe of the first set
0: disagree Ooh. but i think it's like i don't know what's next to the crown jewel the vice crown jewel that's (laughs) what i think it is
1: Fair enough uh, I'm going to guess that this next song Is not what you think is the crown jewel But it is a very good song
0: It's a very tight music never stops But no I don't think it's the crown jewel either
1: On the Queen's crown then You have these two Music never stopped and Scarlet Offset on either side potentially Of the yeah. of the the crown jewel um, <laughs> We're really belaboring this <laughs> This metaphor <laughs>
0: Uh The music never stopped is like more off to the more around the back, the head, like kind of (laughs) above the ear. It's Okay. It's the new
1: logo on the side of the hat. Right. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Again, more to a Testament to this strength of this first set. Then this music never never stopped, which is really, really solid. And it's solid because Bob and Keith are in sync. And this is like a little bit slower tempo music never stopped. And so with this song, with like the kind of, natural rest notes, there's room for error. Like there's room for them to be off sync and maybe be a half second ahead, but they're not, they just don't miss. They are really, really locked in. And while they're all doing that, Phil is just grooving on away in the background. Phil is just killing
1: this song. Everyone is like everything about this song is a really good version. I think this is only the fourth time they had played it live and another East coast debut of the music never stopped um before bob even starts singing jerry lets loose one of those indian bead strings of notes that we read about a couple months ago and just it sounds great he wastes no time getting into it on this song i love the interplay between jerry and bob on uh, on this song guitar wise i think this song is a really good example of how additive both of their playing is each of their playing is to the others the, the others um musicianship and guitar playing the only other note i have on this is even the tuning at the end of this song kind (laughs) of (laughs) rips like there there's nothing about the show that is like like plain you know it's just even the tuning at the end i was kind of like this is pretty good so uh shout out to music never stopped a great version and a really nice east coast debut of that song another east coast debut is up next. And this is what I think you're going to say is the crown jewel.
0: This is the crown jewel. Well, my (laughs) crown jewel of set one, this crazy fingers is fantastic.
1: It is. It's undeniable. This is the third highest ranked version on heady version. Maybe too low.
0: Maybe it's really, Um, really good. These slow and melancholy blues and like the minor chord compositions where Jerry's like smooth and sweet voice juxtaposes the like kind of clash of notes that hits your ears. It's truly beautiful. Like he can capture raw emotion and then present it to you. So innocuous and like, so gentle while like delivering sadness to you. It's just, it's breathtaking really from start to finish, like right at the 420 mark, well, or like right around there, the lick that he does in the solo is just so good. I had to like go back and rewind it like five times.
1: So they played this song 144 times over the years. Uh, this was only the fourth time they had played it. And they, throughout the rest of the summer of 76, they played it a number of times. I mean, not a, not a crazy number, maybe eight to 10 times. And then they put it on the shelf until 1982. After that point, they played it pretty much consistently. There were no more long breaks. From Crazy Fingers, they go into a big, bouncy version of Big River, our first Bobby Cowboy song of the evening, the East Coast's triumphant return to the Bobby Cowboy music that they had loved so much throughout the early 70s. This is a, a, a fun version of this song. It gets a deservedly big applause break at the end. I, I think that that's largely because of Bob's playing and Keith's playing. Keith sounds like he's playing in a saloon during this song. Fits perfectly with what they're what they're going for and it's just like a just a, like I said a bouncy version it's it's very fun it makes you another one that just like is a head bobber so yeah I, I like this version what did you think
0: I thought the same thing The that, that's what I said about it last time that it sounded like he was in a saloon and the key solo is just glorious what he's ripping off here everyone's in sync Jerry is a force when it's his turn to solo and shine he's not like It's not shredding, but that like melodically noodling it's flawless.
1: The Indian bead string.
0: Exactly. And this is the number 34 on heady version. And to put it at the rate basis that you like it's top 15%, which I think is spot on.
1: I would agree from here. They go into, they love each other. This is another one where Jerry and Keith kind of have that dueling solo type of experience. Like we get in big river and they, just build off of each other and it sounds really great i like what jerry's doing below Keith's solo too it's subtle but it sounds really nice and he and phil have some nice interplay while keith is kind of taking center stage with his playing
0: and then to flip that like what keith does on the low piano during like more of the chorus and more of the when like bob and jerry are kind of more prominent that also sounded really good too i think both of them had a good like supporting character role
1: yeah, this this is a good show period for supporting characters. And mm-hmm. everyone plays it at, at various times of the show. Like I said, I think that Jerry's supporting playing to Keith and this song is really good. And you know, Phil, I mean, he's always doing that. Uh, and and Bob too, but just even Donna too. Some of Donna's vocals that are just kind of over the I, I don't mean over the top in that way, I mean like over the top of the playing. Um, just kind of floats above what they're doing throughout the show and it also sounds great in a supporting function. So from they love each other we go into looks like rain Bob is really going for it with the vocals on this song he's really crushing it. Yeah he sounds really good his voice it sounds like extra tender at the beginning of the song but he's he's really giving it he's really giving it his all he's singing from his from his heart. Donna sounds like she can actually hear herself throughout this song, which is great. And throughout the show and her singing is really beautiful. I like how soft she gets with her singing at different points in this song. And it, it just, it sounds great. So first three minutes, what Jerry's doing is super minimalist and same with Keith. They're like kind of existing on the fringes of the music and letting, letting, you know, the vocals kind of take center stage, I guess, and just letting, you know, the other playing happen. And then at 2.45, there's a really big moment on the drums that kind of sets us down the path toward the first big jam. And I think that at, at 6.25, I wrote down, there's like a full minute of Indian bead string playing by Jerry. He's just letting it, letting it go. Just like steadily building in both his tempo and the volume that he's playing at. And it's just a, a great moment in a song that I am on the record as being kind of hit or miss for me. And I I just think that his playing in that moment and the, the bands playing throughout the song really puts this like a cut above a lot of other versions of this song.
0: note it's number five on heady version for good reason and, and i agree with you i think what did it for me was the emotion and the vocals from both bob and donna like the emotion that's pouring out of them especially from around the 5 30 point to the end of the song man it's like inspiring what they're doing and yeah. speaking of inspiring next song ship of fools Whew. yeah what won, won my song last week and it was really trying to fight for back to back this week
1: for different reasons though i mean it so this is a a really really good version the jerry solo around like the four minute mark is so like tender and soulful it actually kind of reminded me of like a david gilmore solo the way that he played for pink floyd and on his solo albums but yeah i mean i thought this was a great version I don't know, the DNA is just different from that 74 version. Maybe it's because that that solo... I mean, Jerry's using a different guitar in 76 than he'd been using in 74. Phil's using a different bass in 76 than he'd been using in 74, and Bob is using a different guitar. So the gear has oh, okay. completely changed in addition to having a second drummer. But maybe it's the second drummer that that makes the sound like so starkly different to me than the 74 version, but I thought it was... I mean, tremendous. The masses agree. It's a top 10 version on heady version of ship of fools. Um, what did you think kind of made it so great?
0: It was two things. I thought one Phil's presence was a little stronger in the mix than the, the 74 version we just listened to. And then I thought it was like, I read it was jazzier, but sadder. Like it felt more emotional. Like it felt sadder, but also like the, what Keith is doing, what Jerry's doing, it felt more of like a jazz song, like the elements of jazz music. So I thought, yeah, jazzier, but sadder. And then Phil being a little, not louder, but like a little stronger and coming in hot from underneath made it kind of hauntingly beautiful.
1: I have nothing to add. I think that's great analysis. That, that was the second to last set. Excuse me. That was the second to last song of set one. The last one is promised land. You can hear Phil call this song. He says, promise Land," mm-hmm. And so it's kind of interesting to me that that was his call. But I mean, it sounds great. Jerry's playing for like the first half of this song just feels so effortless. It's like, I mean, it's, it sounds great, but it also just sounds like he's not even trying and he sounds so great. I mean, this is a song that we've talked about a lot. The Dead played it a ton, but I, I thought this was a, a good version
0: it was zippy and upbeat. Bob and Keith stood out. I didn't have much more to add on that. Yeah. Um, and it launched us into the set break.
1: Yeah. And maybe that's why I also didn't have a ton of notes is because I knew what was coming next. And I was mm. so excited about it that I was just kind of like, let's go, let's get into it. Um, but yeah, this brings us into the set break. We talked a lot about St. Stephen with Dave Davis with at, at Grateful Seconds, if you will. And um, again, this was the reason why we kind of first knew about this show is because this is such a great moment. I think that it's on the short list of like greatest Grateful Dead moments. If, if such a thing exists, I love the instant recognition from the crowd. It is literally two notes in and they <laughs> immediately know what's happening. And you can tell by how crazy they're going that it's not just like oh, we're excited that the second set is starting because they'd been like tuning and playing around before that and the applause was not as big. It's when the this specific song happens, there is a recognition that it's been a really long time since this song, which we talked about it in one of our other episodes throughout the late 60s and early 70s. This was like the, this was their free bird. Uh-huh. This was the song that people were calling for every night and they got like sick of it. and <laughs> So they stopped playing it. And so people recognized how special it was that they were getting to hear it. And it's just, I mean, just a a great moment in Grateful Dead history.
0: And kind of diving more into the song, it comes out of its hiatus with like a driving spacey jam added to the last six minutes of the song, which was really interesting and really cool to hear, you know, from the last time we talked about it was Primal Dead, where it's like a tight three minute rock and roll song and now it's a like a jammy more exploratory song in the second half yeah Uh, so I thought that was really neat
1: completely agree there the minutes around one man gathers what another man spills there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there with the drummers they're doing like really varied and great stuff between like one will be on the toms while the other is just like dancing on the cymbals and then mickey is just like keeping the cowbell strong this whole show um, but during this song in particular. And then this is also the first time because they have not played it in a long time, and this is the first time they played it with Donna, they have that like waltz pace to the Ladyfingers section. Yeah. Whereas it was like very like slow and sparse that section in the late 60s and early 70s. And then when they play it in the later 70s, it it is a it's a waltz and that i think is entirely because of what donna adds in her supporting vocals and i really like it that way i like it both ways but i think that it's it sounds really cool that way and as you're saying it adds something more more unique and varied when you get that like change of pace the counter side to that is apparent i've heard this i don't remember where but one of the things that the dead didn't like about this song is that it has like 10 distinct parts <laughs> It's like the opposite of a straightforward song. There's just so much going on, and so if you like mess up one part, they might have felt like they messed up the whole song. And when you add a, a waltz in the middle of it for a couple seconds, that complicates it further. But this band was up for the challenge, and so for the throughout the late '70s, they just they brought it when it came to the song. It's not like they played it a ton, but when they did, as Dave was saying, he saw it four times. It it sounded great. There are also times in the song where Bob and Donna sound more clear on the vocals than Jerry does. It's interesting that it's like almost more of like a shared vocal experience um, at this point than a a pure Jerry song. And I think that that's partially evidenced by the fact that the song that we get from this is Eyes of the World, you know, like technically or theoretically back-to-back Jerry songs to start set to. (laughs) As you said, around nine minutes into St. Stephen, they fade into this very spacey cerebral jam. It's mostly the drums and fill. And then they come out of that into a beautiful and super long instrumental intro to Eyes. Dave said it was backwards, Eyes of the World, where they don't start the singing into like nine minutes into the song. And um, I really like the theme that Bob is playing around with around the four minute mark. I think it's super unique. I just like how how much they're doing in that first eight minutes, all the different places they go to. And then I think that the payoff when the singing comes in is just, it's really worth it. Jerry sounds great. Donna sounds great with what she's doing. And then post singing you get a very kind of symbol forward jam that the drummers seem to be leading it gets very quiet. And like a lot of songs on this show and especially in the set too, it just kind of melts away at the end.
0: The Drums and like their like hi-hat crashing that they're doing, like using that open hi-hat as like a crash symbol. I thought that was like interesting and kind of inviting and something new at the end of already a pretty new and interesting jam. Like you said, they go in eight different directions in those eight minutes. I like the 315 mark. Bob and Keith completely change it to like a jazz rhythm. And then 45 seconds later, they're back. The drums stood out to me here too. And maybe they needed a rest after all that dancing and jamming, but they're not going to get one because Phil pulls them right into let it grow.
1: The beginning playing, it feels more urgent than anything that they were playing during eyes. And like, they're like they're playing with some tenacity at the beginning of this, this version of let it grow.
0: It feels like they're about to get rushed off stage. Like if you told me this was the fastest tempo, let it grow in history, I would buy it. I mean, it is quick. Now they do cool stuff with it being that fast. And in particular, Bob and Donna with their harmony in the beginning of the song, just wow. But I mean, talk about up-tempo. Like this is, this is rushing, It is not rushing or dragging. It is rushing.
1: Yeah, it's true. There's another song later in this set that I feel is the same way, Samson and Delilah. But this one, I feel like Billy's beat that he's keeping is just at a like breakneck pace. I was listening to this, like I said, the second set during our drive back yesterday and Jane had not made any comments about anything that was going on. And then this song came on and she was like, this song sounds like a runaway train. And I was like, Yes, it does. It absolutely (laughs) does. Um, It does. At the 250 mark, you get Keith, then Jerry, then Phil, then Jerry, just like each of them taking a moment to absolutely burn. And uh, it sounds awesome. Grow. The full weather report suite that we saw and heard the last time we talked about, or the last time we talked to you guys um, on this show, I think that this stands in stark contrast to that, to that song.
0: Big time. So this is, is something I don't think we've ever said before. We've always been saying we like the versions we listen to and they're a little underrated. This is the number 14 version on heady version. And this up-tempo pace is not bad, but I think it's a little too high. When we got the recommendation from Devin Murphy, shout out that Cincy show in 85, that was the number 15 version on Heady version. I think that was better than this. This wasn't bad, but I think the breakneck speed. It didn't work as well in the song as it does with others. Like you talked about Samson and Delilah, then we're going to talk about how it's that way that works for that song. But this song, I feel like it needs a little time to to let it grow and explore some jams in between um, some segments of the song.
1: Yeah, it's interesting the the like trajectories of the song and the one before Eyes of the World. This was the only time they ever played Eyes into Let It Grow. By the way, mm-hmm. they go Very on. Cool. Yeah, they go on different trajectories. Because if you hear Eyes from like especially '86, it's like what just happened. This song, <laughs> it's like this song sounds like the audio embodiment of cocaine in 1986 eyes and this song they like take more time with it and give it more space and whereas eyes especially this one they give it so much space and it works really well and so that is kind of i i i I agree with what you're saying and it's interesting to kind of hear the way those songs developed over this decade from let it grow we they there's big first set You know, opening jam, St. Stephen, Eyes of the World, Let It Grow uh, comes to a close. And then we start off in another one with uh, Brown Eyed Women. This is the shortest song of the second set. I don't have a ton about it, but I I really love this song just as a general matter. And I think that the part at one minute and 40 seconds is just like a prototypical Jerry Garcia Brown Eyed Women solo. I think it's a, a good, strong version, but uh, again, the shortest song of the second set. I, I just don't have a ton on it.
0: But They packed the whole song into that short because they're keeping that that fast, quick tempo. Right. Um, this is a pretty quick brown-eyed woman. Keith was just showing off at the end of the song. Other than that, nothing to add.
1: Fair enough. From here, we get Lazy Lightning and Supplication. So like I said, th- those were the lead two songs on Bob's album... Uh, that was released earlier in 1976, in March of 1976. And so these were the two songs, Lazy Lightning and Supplication, that The Dead took from that album. This was the third time they had performed Lazy Lightning and Supplication. I thought this was a, a good version, super tight Lazy Lightning. And then I really, really liked the supplication. I think that Bob and Donna are in like, they're locked in with each other especially in supplication. And it's not like, I don't mean necessarily that they're just like singing the same things at the same time. Like she is complimenting him exactly as you'd want it as you'd want her to throughout that part. And um, I just, I don't know. I think it's a fantastic version of, of these two songs.
0: Well, the masses agree that it's the number 17 combo on heady version. And what I'm about to say is, is not a bad thing. I think personally, I think this was the low point of the show, but wow. not in, not in like these songs were bad. Like that's, that's like a testament to how good this whole concert was. Like I thought, uh, this was, you know, this was the part that it was a really good combo, but I felt was the low point, And yet it's still kind of rated that high by the masses. But, and I agree. It should be rated that high, like that more of a testament to how strong this show is than like how weak air quotes these two songs are because they're not they're they're moving and grooving i was digging the keith space jazz keys like that like echoey effect he had in supplication
1: do you think that this is potentially a top 10 grateful dead show that you've ever listened to
0: yeah oh yeah
1: yeah i think that this is on like my mount rushmore of grateful dead shows
0: wow for real i mean i mean it's well designed
1: yeah, they just don't miss with this with this show. And then the combination of that, of how great these songs are with a really good set list, I mean, which I don't really care about as much. I love so many songs by the Grateful Dead that set list strength, quote unquote, alone is never going to like make or break a show for me. But The fact that it's so good from top to bottom and you have these unique things happening and then also, as I said, in my opinion, the greatest moment in Grateful Dead history with St. Stephen, I think just puts it into that stratosphere for me. So I I agree with you um, that any, any statement about it being the low point should not be viewed as saying it is a low point just in the big picture of how great this show is. But I'm going to tell you what my low point is in a a couple songs. (laughs) The next song is certainly not the low point, though. It is High Time, revived for the first time since July 12th, 1970, which is the longest break they would take with this song from the time it was introduced until 1995. The tender singing from Jerry just really, really fits well with really tender playing by two people in particular, Keith and Phil. They both just like, what they're doing sounds like very sweet, I guess. And I, I just think that it all melds together in a really nice way.
0: I completely agree because I noted that Keith, Phil, and the drummers, the two words that I used, profoundly pretty. Um, so totally agree. We talk all the time about how Bob and Donna just meld so well. This was the, the song this was one of the two songs that I think Jerry and Donna like really soared together. Um, And we'll talk about the other one in a couple of songs, but yeah, I agree with all of that.
1: I understand that there are songs and shows and years when people don't like what Donna's (laughs) bringing to the table, get that more power to you. If that's what you think Dave and I, We've we've gone over it We're staunch Donna heads But I think that 76 and 77 Are the two years That she sounds The best with the band And this song Is a, a really good Exemplification Of what sounds so great The next song, Samson and Delilah, this was only the third time they'd ever played it and the first on the East Coast. This is not my favorite version of this song. I will admit it. I think that this, for me, is the low point of the show. Here's why. these The, the drumming on this song, they're trying to bring that same heat that they're bringing on like Let It Grow uh-huh. um, and Lazy Light and Supplication. But I think that they get off the beat in the beginning of the song and the first like three minutes sounds really sneakery. And then the way that that becomes even more of a problem is that then Bob is doing like weird things with the way that he's singing this song. He's like singing around the beat, but not on beat. But I do think that Bob's singing is off because the drumming is a little bit off at the beginning of the song. And that takes it down a notch in my book.
0: What saved it for me from being the low point of the show was Keith. He's like noodling around at the beginning during what's traditionally like, hands off drums only, but he's just like, he's playing around. And so, you know, I wrote that, that was a nice treat. And then I added a note underneath it that then his playing throughout the entire song is a nice treat too. He just sounded so good throughout all of this. It's interesting. You say that though, that the, like the, it's not as hot. I didn't think Jerry got as hot as he usually does in this song. I feel like he held back a little. Bob kind of held down the fort on guitar. I didn't notice the vocal offbeat stuff, but I'll go back and re-listen and check that out. Bob held it down at least um, musically on the guitar, but I didn't think Jerry like went for it here. No, I I
1: just think the drummers did.
0: No, no, I know. I, I don't, but I, like during the solo, like the jam solo, I don't think Jerry like really went for it and attacked it. I think he kind of played it safe.
1: Oh yeah, that's fair. From here, we go into Must Have Been the Roses. This is a song that they had played plenty uh, throughout uh, 74. And then they Jerry put it on his uh, Reflections uh, record that came out in 76. And then the dead uh, bring it back uh, for this show. And throughout, I mean, pretty much the rest of their career, uh, they pretty, pretty consistently played this song. Maybe because it's between us, very fast Samson And then you know the first Disco-y uh, Dancing in the street that comes after it And then you have like this kind of slower song In the middle I just kind of Maybe lost track of it a little bit And didn't find it to be as memorable As as other songs throughout the show
0: Oh I was really Impressed by this song And this is I think our first time Talking about it must have been The Roses So I'm going to give it its due I think this song is Jerry's vocal peak of the show. Wow. Like, I think this is where he truly soared and Donna yet again in harmony with him. I thought this was their, like their high point of the show. The two of them together was here. Um, The Keith and Jerry interplay is so good at the end. And this is the number 15 version on Hetty version. This is a front page version. And I thought that was appropriate. I was, this is not, my favorite like slow song, but I thought this version of it was, was fantastic.
1: Wow. Well, I am going to have to go back with fresh years and give it a better listen. And it, it might be partially because I agree with you. It's, it's not my favorite of like the Jerry ballads.
0: Yeah. Like uh, up front, I, I usually, I, I don't seek this song out. That's how I'll put it. Yeah. But I was really, really liking this version by the end.
1: Yeah, and I, I do seek out High Times and War I think that I really like both of those songs. And so maybe maybe that's why it's just you know, personal biases and preferences come into play. The next song is Dancing in the Street. This was the first time they had played it on the East Coast with this new disco arrangement that they played throughout the late 70s. You get Dancing in the Street in the late 60s, early 70s with the one arrangement that they play it considerably slower than this. And then they completely reworked it. <laughs> This is what I was saying earlier about disco really taking the nation by storm. You got this rearrangement of a, of a familiar song to turn it into something completely different. And then when it appeared again in the 80s, they had kind of issued the uh, the disco version and gone back to those early roots of this song. It's a Marvin Gaye cover. And um, I think maybe Martha and the Vandellas also had a pretty popular version. Uh, the Dead play it well. I think that the disco arrangement is like a pretty fun late set to twist to add in definitely got the people up and moving and Phil is working it on this song. He is just like all over the place with his baseline. And I mean that in a good way, just a a great, varied, fun baseline. Phil Phil. and
0: Keith grooving with some funky vibes at the end of the song, Jerry, Keith, and Phil aren't always in sync at that walk down near the end, but it still sounded groovy still sounded good. My question was, and maybe this is ignorant. Isn't this usually a set one song? Because what you were just about just saying, like a a get up and disco dance set two, and maybe Samson this late in the set too, I thought was kind of interesting. It's like these kind of traditionally earlier, if not set one earlier in set two, earlier in the order. So it's interesting that you say that. Coming in.
1: The so this song was debuted in nineteen sixty six, and then they played it from sixty six until giving it a rest on new year's Eve of 1971. And in that range of what's that like five years, Mm -hmm. they played it only five times in set two, but then they bring out this disco arrangement and this was the third time or yeah, like I said, the third time that they had played the disco version and then like the next 50 versions are pretty much all set two until 77 in may 77 they played it as a set one song then back to set two and then when they brought it back in the 80s it was once again a set one song back with its kind of familiar arrangement so yeah you're right uh, from dancing in the street we go right into Warfrat. so that kind of walk down that you were talking about at the end of uh dancing we actually get something similar at the end of Warfrat and I think I said this earlier, they did this a lot throughout the show where they just let the music like melt away at the end of these songs, even when it goes into another one, uh, which was the case here with dancing into a uh, Warfrat. And I think that it worked really, really well. I liked just like it kind of them taking it down and then into this kind of somber warfrat. I thought that, it was a good version I actually had this written down Is what I thought was uh, Jerry's vocal peak Of the show um, And I thought That that was pretty impressive Well of like the Not including the encore Because it's his last song So you'd expect that his voice Would be pretty tired By then As you would for Must have been the roses That's three hours into the show But impressive Impressive um, longevity For his his voice to be Kind of still getting better uh, In both of our views As the show Wrapped up
0: I oh, Bob and Keith impressed the whole run here, start to finish on the song. They were they were great. And then there's a high bass bomb from Phil around like the 320 mark. Just hits you like a brick in the best way. Um, yeah, I thought it was a, a fine version of a beautiful song.
1: This was the first of seven times that they played Dancing in the Street into uh, Warfrat all throughout mm-hmm. 76 and 77. Strange Bedfellows, but I, I think that it it works in a kind of similar way. All of those except for one were in set two, kind of in a similar way to what we would get with a Jerry Ballad later on in the Dead's career, where you'd get, you know, the jam or space and then Jerry Ballad. Here you get fun, bouncy disco song followed by a Jerry Ballad. And then in two, the closer of set one, around and around. And again, Warfrat, same thing. They just like work it down into nothing and then come out come in hot with a, I mean, not like scorching hot, but hotter with a with a nice version of around and around.
0: And a much different around and around than we just talked about on Dave's Picks 42 as the show opener. This was a, a slower tempo around and around, especially comparatively, until the halfway point. Because <laughs> just when you get lulled in and you kind of get a little comfortable with this being the ender, boy, they change the tune in tempo so much and they get so hot so quick, almost on a dime. Like they just decided to just send it. And when they do that, Jerry's like triplet couple couplings that he's pulling off in the solo are so impressive.
1: Could not agree more. That's why I immediately started walking back my coming in hot statement at the beginning of this, because I was like, it is compared to what they're doing at the last like minute of Warfrat. But in comparison to what we're used to with the Round and Rounds, and especially, like you said, that set one opener from last time, it's almost like a ballad in the beginning comparatively. It's quite slow. And then, like you said, switch flips and we get a really hot ending to the show until they come back for, as Dave said, the one Franklin's Tower encore they ever played. It's the top 10 version of Franklin's Tower on Heady Version deservedly so it is just silky smooth we talked about this with zach cropper when we talked with him about how a lot of the 77 shows can feel like they're like smooth to a fault Mm -hmm. this i didn't feel that way about it's just like jerry singing is super sweet and the playing it feels like they just don't take a single misstep throughout the entire song they're just like on it from beginning to end Oh, mm-hmm. We heard uh Dead and Code, you heard it in person. They've then played this song without help on the way and slipknot last summer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And sometimes when they play this song as a standalone, it feels abrupt to me, the beginning of it, because I'm so used to help on the way and slipknot beforehand. But as an encore, I didn't feel that way at all. It 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 felt like sensible and like just natural to me, the fit. I thought it was great.
0: Yeah, this this is you know, unfortunately, this is the first time we're talking about this song. And is it we're, really? It is. And we're 10 eps in. And we haven't talked about a help slip Frank, like in full. Um, we haven't talked about help and slip at all. But it's this is the first time we're talking about my favorite Grateful Dead song is Franklin's Tower. So it was put a smile on my face to see that. I think it's super cool that they encored with it and that like, it, like stands alone as this only time they ever did it. They've got a smooth mellow beginning, like you talked about. The takeoff kind of begins at the three minute mark. It's kind of like more like the warm-up takeoff. They go into like a scorching mid-outro jam, like seven-minute mark. And then they they build and build, and then they get soft, and then they build again um, until Jerry ends it all and says, see y'all later on. I
1: just I'm now filled with uh, so much regret that we have not talked about a Help On The Way Slipknot Franklin's Tower until... I mean, still. What the hell are we doing?
0: We haven't done the full multi yet.
1: We haven't picked what show we're going to talk about next, but it's going to be one with Help On The Way Slipknot and Franklin's Tower. Okay. I love it. We have to at this point. I didn't realize that, Dave. My bad. And I knew that this was your favorite dead song. So it's uh, an, an oversight on on our shared parts to not have one. But anyway, yeah. I mean, great analysis by you. Um, I'm excited now to talk about help slip Frank for our next show. So that's it. And that is all for this tremendous, tremendous Grateful Dead show from June, June 9th, 1976 at the Boston Music Hall. Thank you so much to you guys for listening. Thank you even more, if possible, to Dave Davis for joining us for a great conversation and thank you to him as well for just like his website. It's such a great resource. And um, I hope that he will keep writing there for a long time. Dave, how do we land this plane?
0: Well, what's that one song? I think I know what it is for you, but it could be the reason we're talking about this show, but what's that one song you're taking with you from this whole show?
1: It's St. Stephen. Come on. It's gotta be. There's, there was never a doubt. What about for doubt.
0: I'm going to hold on to my crown jewel from set one. <laughs> I'm going to be weird and take a crazy fingers from a show that is not known for its crazy fingers, but just fantastic plan on that whole thing. It hurts not to take the St. Stephen with you, but I'll let you have it. You take it and I'll take, I'll take the crazy fingers.
1: That's kind of you. It's a good draft pick by you as well. I think that um, we both, we both win. Everyone wins with this show. We have a couple of fun shows that we're going to be talking about coming up though throughout the summer. One is the 72070 show in New York City. The uh, Gary and David on Tales from the Golden Road told us that that show and the night before are just ripping. We might do that in July to coincide with the anniversary. We have a 93 show coming up from the series of shows they did in Rosemont, Illinois in 1993. And then later on this summer, we are going to talk about uh, one of another one of my Mount Rushmore shows, the Sunshine Daydream show from Veneta, Oregon. Um, that one will come out on the 50th anniversary, uh, August 27th, 72, or excuse me, 22. So we got a lot of fun stuff coming up this summer. This interview with Dave is our, our last interview for a little while, uh, at least so we think. But um, thank you all for listening with us. It's been a fun few months making this show. Uh, Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and... um,
0: Email workingmanspod at gmail.com. There's no apostrophe. There's no underscore in the email. So if you're like, "Ah, I sent these guys an email like a month ago and they haven't gotten back to me. Workingmanspod, all one word, no punctuation at gmail.com. That's right. And on that note,
1: we'll bid you good night. Good night,
0: good, good, good night.
1: night, And i good you good night, good night, good night, good
2: night,
0: good night, night.
2: That's it. That's good, it. That's it. good good night, good night. You got it.